the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The factor is not available in all. The following program is sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy reminds us that things aren't always as they appear. This isn't the world out of control getting away with the murder of Jesus Christ. This is the sovereign plans of God promised and prophesied centuries before. And by implication, whatever is going on in your life, no matter how tough, no matter how bad, no matter how heartbreaking, God is up to something. Welcome to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd. Can you imagine living in the first century under the iron rule of Rome? Well, in today's message, we're looking back on history to learn how God employs kings and governors, soldiers and fishermen to bring about his purposes. God had a divine plan that allowed Rome to rise, setting the stage for our Savior to die. Philip is explaining the supernatural plans of God in a message titled, Not by Chance. It's my conviction that when it comes to a Christian's life, there are no accidents, only appointments. Whatever will be is meant to be. You can see that in the story of Joseph. When you see the jealousy of his brothers and the harm that they did to him, we also see in Genesis 50 verse 20 what they meant as evil. God meant for good. God was doing something in the midst of that disappointment and difficulty because there are no accidents. There are only appointments in the life of the Christian. We view life like this. There's nothing random, nothing senseless, nothing faithful about anything that happens to us. Faith allows us to see life not as a matter of natural selection or blind forces, but divine appointment. There are no accidents, only appointments. In fact, I did a little bit of a word study this week on the word appointed. And in Psalm 104, verse 19, we read that God appointed the seasons, spring and summer and fall and winter. We read in Romans 13, verse 1, that the powers that be are ordained or appointed by God. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, verse 7, that he was appointed by God to be a preacher of the gospel. Speaking of persecution and the suffering of God's people, he says in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, we are appointed to these things. Even speaking of salvation, we read in Acts 13, verse 48, that many put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those appointed to salvation. You see, there are no accidents in the Christian's life, only 
divine appointments. Wherever you are in life, whatever pickle you're in, whatever pressure you're facing, it's my conviction, I believe, taught by the Word of God, that whatever has come to you has passed through the hands of God first. He has permitted it. He has purposed it. He has planned it. There's nothing random, senseless, or fateful about your life. God is working all things together for good. Romans 8 verse 28. Or Ephesians 1 verse 11, where we read that God is working all things after the counsel of His own will. What we're talking about here is the providence of God. You ever hear preachers talk about the providence of God? Now, the word providence isn't found in your Bible. It's a word made up of two Latin terms, video and pro, before and to see. So providence carries the idea of seeing something beforehand. And so it speaks about God's omniscience and God's omnipotence. It speaks about God's ability to see everything beforehand. But you need to understand that God is not passive in that. God's not simply a spectator. God orders all the events of life directly, or He permits them indirectly. God not only sees everything, but oversees everything. And so, you and I believe that this world is governed, and all the events ordained by God. If you don't realize it, God's management style is hands-on. You know, God didn't wind the world up like a mechanism and then leave it to run by itself. God is not unremoved and unmoved. God is involved in all human affairs, in the marching of armies and in the falling of a sparrow and the sleeping of a child. It's our belief as Christians that God has got His hand on the tiller of human history. And what's amazing about this doctrine is that it shines brightest in the darkness. And we see that here at Calvary. We see the sovereignty of God at work in the evil actions of men, in the satanic plots of the evil one. We see in the darkness of Calvary the sovereignty of God and the providence of God magnificently and mysteriously at work. I mean, think about the cross. Wouldn't you agree with me that it's a dark moment? It's perhaps the low point in terms of man's rebellion against God where they take his son and murder him. Yet in the presence of all this evil, God is not absent. Didn't we read in Acts 2, 22 to 24, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs from God through him were done in your midst him being delivered by the purpose and foreknowledge of God, you took by lawless hands and crucified. So there's an acknowledgement that while men took Jesus Christ by wicked hands, there was a hidden hand, a sovereign hand that was ordaining and ordering all the events of the cross, which would remind us that when you and I find ourselves in the presence of evil, God is not absent. There are no accidents, only appointments in the life of the Christian. So let's come and look at Mark 15 once again. The role of verses 40 through 47 is that the death of Jesus might be confirmed and that 
The stage might be set for his soon resurrection. And what we're going to see once again is that God is sovereign and in charge of the events of Calvary. If you've been following along, you'll have seen that when they offered Jesus wine mixed with mirth, that was the fulfillment of Psalm 69 verse 21. If you saw in Mark 15 that they divided his clothes and cast lots for them, that was the fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18. When he was crucified between two criminals, one on the left and one on the right, that was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. When they crucified him and pierced his hands and his feet, that was a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 16. Now, the last time we were together, we heard the Lord Jesus pierce the darkness with that cry of dereliction, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's an echo of Psalm 22, verse 1. God is sovereignly ordering and ordaining the events of Calvary. Although you have the free exercise of men's will here, where they, out of jealousy and hatred, take the Lord Jesus and, in an act of wickedness, crucify Him, their actions are not outside of God's control. They are permitted. What is going on has been predetermined and preordained. And we're going to see this even in the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ because we're introduced to a man called Joseph of Arimathea. He goes to Pilate. He asks for the body of Jesus Christ. He is granted that body. You say, is that significant? Absolutely. Because in Isaiah 53 and verse 9, it says that Jesus will be buried among the rich. And it says in Matthew 27, verse 57, that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, and he buries Jesus in his own tomb. Jesus is buried among the rich. Again, this isn't happenstance. This isn't the world out of control getting away with the murder of Jesus Christ. This is the sovereign plans of God promised and prophesied centuries before, reminding us then when it comes to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it's not by chance. And by implication, whatever is going on in your life, no matter how tough, no matter how bad, no matter how heartbreaking, God is up to something. When you feel that things are out of control, and maybe from where you sit or where you stand, that's how it seems and that's how it feels. Faith has got to get above your emotions and remind you that even in the middle of all of this, God is working all things together for good. Now, let's look at the text. And as time allows me, we're going to look at three things. Number one, what I call the fact. Number two, the followers. Number three, the fulfillment. The first thought is not very long, but I do want us to miss it. The fact. The fact of Jesus' death. This story as I've said, confirms Jesus' death. Look at verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, he came taking courage and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summonsing the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. One would assume that was confirmed. And so he grants Joseph the body of Jesus. The fact is this. Jesus died. In fact, his death certificate has three signatories, three notorieties on it. That is, Joseph, who buried Jesus, 
Pilate, who heard the testimony of the centurion, and the centurion who witnessed the fact that Jesus was already dead. That's the fact. And our text establishes the fact that Jesus died. Now, that's important. You say, why? Because in the past, and even today, there are those who deny the resurrection, and here's their argument. Jesus didn't really die. He fell into unconsciousness on the cross. The trauma of all he had gone through, he was unconscious. And when he was buried in a cold tomb, he swooned back to life. This is called the swoon theory. In fact, there's a heretical strain of Islam that teaches this, that Jesus swooned, came back to life. It's not a matter of resurrection. It's a matter of resuscitation. And this is the theory by those who want to discount the resurrection, that Jesus revived in the tomb. And so we don't want to pass over the fact that Mark wants you to know, and he wants to historically verify and validate the fact that Jesus was certified dead by the Romans. And they were good at execution, by the way. They weren't fooled. And you know what? For those who want to argue for the swoon theory, it's unscriptural. Each eyewitness account by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John verifies the fact that Jesus died and validates it through witnesses. And in this case, we've got three, Pilate, the centurion, and Joseph of Arimathea. This is unscriptural. Number two, it's unsustainable. This stretches credulity. To buy in to the swoon theory is to stretch credulity. Think about this. Is it not ludicrous to suppose that Jesus Christ, who had suffered a night of anxiety so extreme that he sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane, lost a night's sleep, was without food and water for multiple hours, was beat by the Sanhedrin, then scourged by the Romans. And we saw historically the scourging is so severe that many crucifixion victims died even before they were crucified. He was then pinned to a Roman cross, suffered there for several hours, then was pierced through the side by a Roman lance, Then he was wrapped in linen. He was then covered in a hundred pounds of spice, laid in a tomb, and somehow Jesus swooned back to life, revived back to life, rolled the stone away, dodged the guards, then got his disciples together, perpetuated a lie. You know what? Tell him it's resurrection when it's really resuscitation. And you know what? You guys all need to die for the lie. You get it. It's fanciful. It takes more faith to believe that than actually to believe the historical account of the gospel. So there you have what I call the fact. Just don't overlook it. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to taste death for all men. The wages of sin is death. He actually died, which means he actually atoned for our sin. And we're thankful for that fact. And then he rose three days later. That's the fact. What about the followers? Well, The text introduces us to several women in verse 40. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joas, and Salome. We're told that they followed the Lord Jesus from his early days in Galilee, ministered to him financially and practically, and they were wonderful women. But they're standing on from afar. They're not right by the cross. We'll pick up their story again in verse 47, where two of them will observe where Jesus was buried. Then in verses 1 through 8 in Mark 16, we're going to see that they're very hesitant, they're alarmed, they're frightened by the news that Jesus 
has risen from the dead. And sandwiched in between this is the story of a man called Joseph of Arimathea. So we've got four followers of Jesus. Now, this is what we call a Mark and sandwich. We've talked about this before. One of the literary devices of Mark is that he tells a story and then he inserts a story into the middle of the story, a second story that either contrasts or corrects the first story. And I agree with James Edwards in his comedy, Mark, that what you've got here is a contrast between the fear of the women who are standing afar off, who will be shocked and frightened when they see the empty tomb, with the faith and the fearlessness of Joseph of Arimathea, who plucks up the courage to go and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. They keep their distance out of fear. He goes right into Pilate's court and asks for the body. He's a contrast to the women. He's fearless. They're fearful. Although, be honest, they're doing better than the disciples who had all scampered. Well, it'd be too hard on the ladies. But let's focus on Joseph. Time doesn't allow me to do an in-depth study of him, but there's a few things that we should note about him. According to Matthew 27, 57, he was a rich man. He was a man of means. He had done well for himself. I don't know if he had made it through business or connections or inherited that, but he was a rich, a wealthy, a well-to-do man. As we say in Ireland, well-heeled. He was rich. And secondly, according to Mark here in our text, he was a prominent council member. And it's the assumption and argument of most commentators he was a member of the Sanhedrin. In fact, we're pretty sure about that. Luke actually mentions that fact over in Luke 23, verses 50 and 51. Now, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man, and he had not consented to their decision. Indeed, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews. What's Luke talking about? The decision of the Sanhedrin to send the Lord Jesus to his death through Pilate and crucifixion. He didn't concede to that. He didn't want to be party to that. And we would be reminded that not all in the Sanhedrin were enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember back in Mark 12, the young man who comes and asks the Lord Jesus about what's the greatest commandment. Jesus said, do you know what? That's a good question. The young man said, that's a good answer. And we read, you're not far from the kingdom. They weren't all antagonistic. And within the ranks, you have a disciple of Jesus. So you've got his background wealthy from Arimathea, which was, I believe, northwest of Jerusalem. You've got his background and you've got his belief. He was a just man, according to Luke 23. According to Mark 15, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And according to Matthew 27, verse 57, he's a disciple. Now, we don't know when he had become a disciple. If you go to John 19, Nicodemus helps him bury the Lord Jesus maybe Nicodemus led him to the Lord. Could be, because Nicodemus was a ruler in Israel. And perhaps their paths crossed. Nicodemus had been born again, and now he shares with Joseph of Arimathea the great news that the one they had hoped for, they had waited for, has come. Perhaps that's not the case. Perhaps that through both hearing and seeing the miracles, watching Jesus' forgiveness and fortitude in the middle of how he was treated, in the crucifixion, he becomes a disciple. But the bottom line is, he has now come to this conviction that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's been waiting for the kingdom, and Jesus is the king who will bring the kingdom. His bravery, his bravery. Because in Mark 15, 43, we read, 
Coming and taking courage, he went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So his background, rich, member of the Sanhedrin, a ruler in Israel, his belief, Jesus is the king who's going to bring the kingdom, and he becomes a disciple. His bravery is that he goes and asks for the body of his Lord. Now, there was a risk to that. I don't think Pilate particularly liked the Sanhedrin because they had boxed him into the corner and made him make a decision he really didn't want to make. Plus, if he now sides with Jesus and the disciples and goes public, he's going to lose friends in the Sanhedrin and be persecuted. This was a risky move. But he takes courage and does it. Now, as I mentioned, time doesn't allow me to go there. You write down John 19, verse 38. It does say that he was a disciple of Jesus secretly for fear of the Jews. For a time, he hid his fear. For a time, he didn't go public about his commitment to Jesus Christ. But you know what? I love the Greek here. He gathered up his courage, you know? Gathered up his courage. He dared. He became bold, and he went public with his fear. Now, remember that courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is acting despite your fears. Any soldier getting into battle is fearful. If he's not, he's a fool. But you know what? The courageous soldier doesn't deny his fear. They act despite their fears. They master their fears. And at some point, Joseph of Arimathea gathers up enough courage to act despite his fears. And he masters his fear and he goes public. He comes out of the shadows into the glare of public scrutiny and says to Pilate, I want his body. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I thought you were a member of the Sanhedrin. Yes, I am, but I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's a challenge, isn't it? I want to remind you and me that Jesus Christ is not a private matter. Our faith in Him, our commitment to Him is not like some vintage car that we bring out only on the weekends and polish on a Sunday. No, it's a public matter. It's an everyday affair. If you are arrested and charged with being a Christian, there should be enough evidence to convict you. Your family knows. Your children see it. Your neighbors have heard about it. Your workmates have seen it on display. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 8, 38, If you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. Faith's not a private matter. It's a public matter. You've got to go public with it. You've got to believe in your heart. You've got to confess with your mouth. That's Philip DeCourcy here on Know the Truth. Hear more from this Essential Jesus series when you visit ktt.org. You'll find all of Philip's messages archived there, listed by series title. As Philip said today, our faith is not a private matter. Jesus calls us to share our faith with the world and to proclaim the hope that's within us. And that's our mission here at Know the Truth. We're proclaiming God's truth daily because it's God's truth that changes how we raise our families, how we do our jobs, and how we relate to our neighbors. Most importantly, the truth changes how we worship God. But we can't present God's truth without your support. Your regular investment in the ministry of Know the Truth demonstrates your commitment to see the gospel go out into all the world, just as Jesus commanded. So join our mission today and give a gift to help share God's word with the world, setting men and women free with God's truth. And when you give, we'll send you our newest resource, a book that will give you a new direction for the new year, Living Well by Alan Mosley, 
presents the wisdom of Proverbs, addressing topics like relationships, work, and finances. You'll find God's Word offers practical wisdom for living well. Request your copy of Living Well today when you give a gift of any amount to know the truth. Call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. And when you're visiting our website, you'll notice we're offering a free CD message from Philip called Stop Your Worrying. Often the new year comes with a new set of worries, but Philip wants to help you put worrying behind you, exchanging it for the deep and abiding peace of God. Request this free message when you call 888-644-8811. I'm Wayne Shepherd. So glad you joined us today. There's more bold Bible teaching coming up next week on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. try trading stocks on your own? Sounds scary, doesn't it? All the math and analysis, charting and graphs, and what if you make a mistake? The fear of investing causes people to give their money to advisors at large financial firms. But do they care about your future as much as you do? At Tradeway, our experienced investors teach you how to break down the confusing world of finance and be in control of your money. Learn how to avoid mistakes and find potential profits. If you don't plan to trade, at least you'll know what your advisor is doing. Controlling your investments may seem like a big goal, but small steps can get you there. To learn more, call 877-907-TRADE or go to Tradeway.com. That's Tradeway.com. Tradeway. Big goals, small steps. Coming to the Renaissance Arlington, January 19th and 20th. Only $99.95 for your entire household, plus a free ticket for a friend and a full money-back guarantee. To register, call 877-907-TRADE. That's 877-907-8723. Or go to Tradeway.com. That's Tradeway.com. If you're over four... Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.